We have gentlemen coming forward that have a Bible that they would love to give to you. If you don't have a Bible, you can have that one with our compliments. You will also find that it is marked in the scripture passage that we will be examining today so that you don't have to hunt for it. Malachi 2 is the scripture passage that we'll be examining today. Uh, Pastor Ken sends his greetings. He is preaching at another church today, and so you can offer a quick prayer for him uh, right now if you'd like as he preaches there. And that also explains why you've had to see my ugly face up here for the entire time this morning. Uh, he's gone, and so I have, uh, am, am, am doing his parts as well and preaching for him this morning. Let me ask you a question this morning. Has anyone here ever had unmet expectations? Okay, but from your laughter, I can tell <laughs> everybody here at one time or another has had unmet expectations, things that haven't gone the way that you expected them to go. Okay, I have certain expectations for Sunday mornings. I, every week for years, years, I have expectations of how Sunday morning is going to go. Here's my expectations for Sunday morning. I wake up early, excited to get out of bed, immediately awake, ready to walk downstairs and grab a steaming cup of coffee that I can then go to my desk, read the Bible, pray, and it's quiet. There's no sounds. There's no screaming coming from the baby's room. And then I would like to, after that, I've had a leisurely time with that, I'd like to proceed downstairs and turn on some worship music that will waft through the house. No matter what room I'm in, I can hear it, I can be singing along. And then I would like my children, who get up at an ungodly hour every other morning of the week, to try to get up even a little close to that time on Sundays, I would like them to cheerfully hop out of bed, sweetly hug me with excitement that today we're going to church. I would like them to be pleased with the outfits that their mother has chosen for them, pleased with their color, whether they're tight enough or not, the tag not scratching the back of their neck. I would then like them to walk to the, to the area where we have breakfast. And I would like them to think that, agree with us, that our choice for breakfast is indeed their choice. That's exactly what they wanted to have for breakfast. I would like them to eat that breakfast in silence. <laughs> Listening to the music and meditating on the words of the worship music that I have carefully selected the night before. I would then like us to, with joy, casually to walk to the van, and proceed to church without breaking any speed limit or traffic laws. I'd like us to arrive at church a few minutes early and to saunter in, greeting each person as we do so. Does that ever happen? (laughs) My expectation on Sunday morning is never met, ever. (laughs) That never happens that way. Nobody is ever happy with the clothes that were picked out for them or the breakfast that's on the table. 
And it's like a fire drill getting out of the house and making it to church on time. That never happens. My expectation is never met. So what can I do in that kind of instance? With that kind of expectation, I have, I have a couple of options. I can say, well, if that's the way you're going to be, family, forget it. We're not going to lay your clothes out. I'm not going to pro- take the, the care to provide this wonderful worship music for you to listen to. I'm going to be a grouch. I'll get up whenever I feel like it. It'll be every man for himself because my expectation isn't met. Okay, I can, I can adjust my investment, my effort. I can say, okay, whatever. It's not worth it. Or I can adjust my expectation. I can say that it doesn't have to be the way I want it to be on Sunday mornings. I don't have to be the grand architect that I think I am. I can still put in the effort to ensure that we, that we make it to church on time and that everyone is reasonably dressed and reasonably fed, but I can adjust my expectation. But whether it's with a relationship or with a job or whatever it might be, oftentimes we don't choose to adjust our expectation. We adjust the amount of effort that we put into the situation. That's kind of the situation, that's a funny situation, but that's kind of what's going on in the book of Malachi on a much more serious level. Because the people in Malachi, the nation of Israel, had been captured years before. They had been captured and taken out of their land, separated from their temple, separated from all the things that they held dear, And God, through miraculous means, had brought them finally back into the land. And their temple that they loved, they'd been given the time and the resources to rebuild that temple. They'd been able to rebuild the walls. And their expectation was that the glorious kingdom age they had anticipated so dearly was about to occur. God was going to vindicate them. God was going to justify them. God was going to reign with them and they would experience peace and prosperity on a level that they had never experienced before. That was their expectation. But that's not what was happening. And so, over time, over a period of years, rather than adjusting their expectations, rather than than taking God at his word, rather than believing the Lord... They decided to adjust their effort. If this is the way God is going to be, all right, I see how you're going to play this. You're going to get half effort from us. It's not worth putting the time into it. And the very, the very beginning of the, of the book in, in chapter 1, God tells them, I have loved you. And what's their response? How have you loved us? God tells them that he is going to bring justice And they say, where? Where is the God of justice? God sits idly by while the wicked prosper. The people at this time considered God to be unengaged and uninterested in what was going on. And rather than adjusting their expectations, they adjusted their effort. And it filtered into every area of their lives. They were supposed to offer sacrifices in a particular way. They did it half-heartedly. They did it wrong, contrary to how the law prescribed for them. They were supposed to bring tithes of all that they had to the Lord. But they were stingy, and they held back. 
They were supposed to do all sorts of things, and this this half-heartedness, this lack of investment filtered down even into their interpersonal relationships, even down into their marriages. And it's their marriages that I would like us to consider this morning. This text, this section of the Bible was written a couple of millennia ago. And yet the amazing thing about God's word is that he wrote it for people of all ages. And though the names and the faces and the situations are different, God's word has has not just some relevance, but an exact relevance to our situations today. So let's read Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 to 16 together. Malachi 2, verses 10 to 16. The word of God says this, Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord of God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as with his garments, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Now, it doesn't take too many readings of this scripture to realize the theme of what's going on here. Over and over again, there are different words to use, different words and phrases used to describe the people's infidelity to their marriage covenants. In In verses 10 and 11, it's referred to as profaning the covenant, breaking faith with one another. Judah has broken faith. In verse 11, it says, a detestable thing has been committed. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary. He is marrying the daughter of a foreign god. In verse 14, it says, you have broken faith with her. Verse 15 says, do not break faith with the wife of your youth. And verse 16 says again, do not break faith. The theme is obvious. God's people were doing a couple of things here. They had made a commitment to their spouse that they were breaking. And then they were turning around and marrying people from outside the faith. They were, they were looking at their spouses and saying, I'm done with you, I want her, or I want him. And it doesn't matter, matter whether this person is a worshiper of the one true God or not, that's what I want, so you're out, 
and you're in. And I believe that, that Malachi wants to draw their attention to this by talking about their relationship to God. He's drawing them back to faithfulness to their marriage commitment by reminding them of a bigger commitment, a bigger relationship than their marriage, a relationship that they have with God Almighty. And so we can see this timeless principle in your take-home truth that's in the outline that you should have received in your program. If you want to follow along with that, there's an outline with some blanks in there. You can just listen if you want, but there are blanks to fill if you'd like. The take-home truth is this. Your relationship with God demands total commitment to your spouse. Your relationship with God demands total commitment to your spouse. Before we really get into this, I want to note a couple of things. I want to note, first of all, that though though the Bible is prohibiting divorce in these passages, the passage that we're looking at, the Bible recognizes that in some instances, divorce is both justifiable and sometimes necessary. So I'm making that caveat at the beginning because all of us have in our minds all sorts of situations and there is, there is justifiable divorce and there is unjustifiable divorce. It's the unjustifiable one that we are examining this morning. The second thing I want to recognize at the very outset is that life in a fallen world is messy. And we have all sorts of marital situations here in our church family. All sorts of people who have been divorced, remarried in our family. I recognize that. The Bible recognizes it, and this message is meant to encourage you to move forward, not to beat you up about the past. Okay, I'll say that again. This message is meant to encourage you to be faithful to your commitments now, not to hit you over the head with what you've done in the past. God's grace is greater than all of our sin. So to return to our take-home truth, what is it about your relationship with God that demands total commitment to your spouse? What is it? It is first of all this. Number one, God is your father and you must maintain family unity. Okay, So so, so Malachi is saying, be faithful to your spouse. Here's why. Here's the reason. Here's the relationship that looms large over everything else that you do. God is your father, and you must maintain family unity. We can see that in verses 10 to 12. At the very beginning, it says, Have we not all one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? The Bible uses the term father to describe the special relationship that God had with his people that he did not have with everyone. The term father was used as a special relationship. It was a, it was a redemptive relationship. God had, had made a covenant agreement with his chosen people to redeem them from their sin, to make a way for them to have fellowship with him. And he was willing to make that relationship so close that it could be described as a family relationship. I will be your father. And he says, did not one God create us? And I don't believe that that creation there is referring to the fact that God, of God's general creatorship of all things. It's referring to the fact that God created a people where there was not uh, earlier a people. 
It is God's, God is existing with his people in special relationship by virtue of the fact that he is their father and he is their creator. We can see the concept of God as father and creator throughout the New Testament, but I'll give you just two examples. Isaiah 63 verse 16 says, But you are our father. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. He says in Exodus 32, verses 6 and 18, Is this the way you repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. God had made a covenant with his people in which he promised that they would be his special possession. God promised to bless, care for, and lead them, and they had certain covenant responsibilities as his people, as his children, with with him as their father, one of which was not to intermarry with the pagan nations around them. This is evident from the verse, one of the verses that I started reading. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. Then consider Deuteronomy 7 and verse 3. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. These verses that we've been looking at in Malachi give three different phrases to describe breaking faith. Breaking faith or breaking their marriage covenant was, was described as, as profaning the covenant, as desecrating the sanctuary, as marrying the daughter of a foreign god. It was profaning the covenant. The harm done to that physical relationship took a back seat to the harm done to the spiritual relationship. God had made a covenant with his people, and the abandoning of their covenantal vows with one another was an, aban- was an abandonment of their covenantal vows that they had made with him and before him. Furthermore, the Bible calls this, this breaking faith, this breaking the commitment, desecrating the sanctuary. The idea here was that the place that God had chosen to dwell, God had chosen to dwell with this people, this chosen people in a very special, particular, visible way, a brick and mortar way. There's a temple there, and that is a symbol of God's dwelling with his people. And God considered the breaking of their marriage covenants and their intermarrying with the pagans around them as a violation of his temple. God considered his temple violated, desecrated, and profaned. Describes it as marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Let me be clear. The Bible here is not prohibiting interracial marriage. Quite the contrary. The Bible, it's important to understand that at this time, the people of God were both a spiritual and a national or ethnic entity. They were one and the same. So the people of God were a particular nation at this time. That is not the case for us now. The people of God are people from every kingdom, tribe, tongue, nation, and language. The Bible is not prohibiting interracial marriage. The Bible is prohibiting 
creating spiritual alliances with people who do not recognize God as Lord. Foreigners, bringing foreigners into this were people whose allegiance were to other gods. And it's interesting that our passage of Scripture describes those people being brought into those relationships in terms of their spiritual relationship, not, not where they're from, but who they relate to, the daughter of a foreign god. And God is contrasting, Malachi is contrasting, that we have people who's, who the one true god is their father marrying the daughter of a foreign god. And doing so was destroying the unity of God's people. Their failure to follow and follow through on their covenants was bad enough, but it was compounded by the fact that God's people were then marrying others whose allegiances were diametrically opposed to the one true God. And God viewed it as a desecration of his temple and of his people. Now, how does this apply to us? After all, as I've said, the church is made up of people all over the world. The church has shifted from being a a national entity to a multinational entity. We are not under the Mosaic law that the people of God at that time were under, and yet it is clear that there are many parallels between their situation and ours. God introduces himself to them as their father. And God is no less a father to the people of God today. Romans chapter 8 verses 15 to 17 says this, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. God is our Father as well. And secondly, we see in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. God is still in the business of calling people to himself from all walks of life and from all nations. And he grants them the right to be called children of God. He grants us that same special relationship so that we can relate to him as a father. We are no longer strangers to his grace, but we are co-heirs with Christ. We are his workmanship. We, the people of his, uh, of his making, are his workmanship. He wants to put us on display as a testament to what he has done, as a testament to his grace. So we too can call God as Father, and since God is our Father, we as well have a responsibility to maintain family unity in all areas, but in our marriages specifically. Because marriages are not just physical unions that have nothing to do with God and nothing to do with spirituality Because that is the case, the New Testament is unified with the Old Testament and prohibiting believers from seeking out spouses from outside the faith. Let me show you where we can find that. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 39 says this, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. 
But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. The argument in this chapter, which we don't have time to to fully unpack, is that marriages should stay together if at all possible. It's a responsibility of a husband not to divorce his wife and a responsibility of, of a wife not to separate from her husband. Even when one of those parties becomes a believer, decides to follow Jesus, the advice remains the same. And the the biblical advice to the person in that situation is, new Christian, don't seek to end your marriage. Marriage is too important. Now, if that person that you are married to does not like your decision to follow with Christ and decides to walk away, let them go. But don't be the one that initiates the break. Try to stay with them, if at all possible. And then the Bible says in the verse that we just read, after making such a strong case for, for keeping marriages together, of course, if, a, if one of the parties dies, you're free to remarry. If, with the caveat, that person belongs to the Lord. Now, this isn't exactly the most popular thing in the world to say. I get that. But why, does, why do you think the Bible makes such a big deal about this? Why, why is it so important? I believe, as we're going to see from a, verse, uh, a, a few verses that we're about to read, that God still dwells with his people. Though we do not have a physical temple made of brick and mortar, we now as believers here in local bodies and across the world are the people of God in whom he has chosen to dwell. Look at what these verses say. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. You can see that, that, that the temple where God has chosen to dwell has, has shifted from a place to a people. And what God is doing in the world today is purifying a people for himself to fulfill that promise. I will live with them and walk with them and be their God and they will be my people. As God's children, as people who call him father, we must be faithful to our father, not only by keeping our marriage covenants, but by maintaining family unity. Your relationship... With God the Father requires that you maintain family unity. But secondly, God is your witness. God is your witness and you must keep your commitments. God is your witness and you must keep your commitments. Let's look again at verses 13 and 14. The Bible says, Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. You can see in this verse that God is calling himself a witness 
God was there when that marriage covenant was made. And he is now calling them to be faithful to the commitment that they made before him. And God is telling them, you cannot carry on with business as usual when you are profaning the covenant that you have made. And thus the covenant that I have made with you. It said that God would not accept their sacrifices. And the Bible doesn't make it clear how they knew that. In the next chapter, they are commanded to bring the tithes into the storehouse. And God promises to bless them with physical blessing if they would only do that. So perhaps there was some sort of indication to them that God was not accepting their sacrifices. But whatever the, whatever the case may have been, God was not accepting their sacrifices. They knew it. And though they, they figuratively flooded the altar with tears, though they would weep and wail over God's not accepting their sacrifices... He would not do so. And they came to the painful realization that their religious fervor and activities were in vain. God does not take pleasure in the religious offerings of people engaged in willful hypocrisy. Their tears were not the tears of repentance over their sin, but simply the tears that God would not accept what they gave on their terms. Now, how can we think about this for ourselves? Of course, we do not offer sacrifices. And though the religious channel on TV might tell you that there is a direct connection between your faithfulness to God and material blessing, that is not the case for us. But God does not accept outward acts of religious practice or devotion that are not accompanied by heartfelt obedience. God does not accept outward acts of religious practice or devotion that are not accompanied by heartfelt obedience. The point is not that, that to worship God you must be perfect and that you've got to have the right marriage and that you've got to have it all together. That's not the point at all. The point is that one cannot engage in willful and unrepentant sin and expect that religious practice in and of itself will just paper over the situation. It doesn't work like that. God's people then had not yet learned the, re- the lesson that religious activity in and of itself cannot please God. And so, applied specifically to marriage, God is telling us that you cannot be unfaithful to your spouse and expect to carry on business as usual with him. Do you realize that there's a sense in which God stood up at your wedding? You have bridesmaids and groomsmen that stand up at your wedding, and a lot of times it's just about a party and them doing some of the planning. But those people are up there to bear witness to something. They're up there to bear witness that you are making a covenant with another human being that you intend to last for life, and that you are making that covenant in the sight of God. And as witnesses of that covenant, they are to call you to that covenant should you stray from it. They are to remind you, you made a promise before God that it was till death. That's the role, and God is taking on that role in each and every one of our marriages, calling us to our commitments and reminding us that we must keep those commitments that we made it before him. The unfaithfulness 
that we can perpetrate to our spouses can take many forms. <clears throat> can take the form of leaving your spouse for someone else. There are the obvious things. There are the very public things. But as this passage of scripture that we've been looking at in Malachi tells us, it goes beyond the outward stuff that everybody sees all the way down to the heart. God cares about the heart of faithfulness to your spouse. God doesn't just care that you are outwardly together. God wants you to be faithful to to your spouse the way he is faithful to you. And Jesus always ups the ante. In Matthew 5, 27 and 28, he says, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Unfaithfulness can take many forms. Unfaithfulness can, to your spouse can take the form of an inordinately close relationship with a person of the opposite gender in your workplace. Your work husband or your work wife is the joke that we use. But that person helps avoid the humdrum of the relationship that you've had with that same guy or that same woman for years and years and years. And a little bit of flirtatious excitement doesn't really hurt anything, right? But it does. You're unfaithful to your spouse when you constantly escape in your imagination and imagine life without him. What would it be like if this guy was gone and he was replaced by someone else? You're unfaithful to your spouse when you escape with woman after woman after woman virtually, whose sole purpose in life is to entertain your lusts. She will never tell you no. And you never have to have a discussion with her about who's going to pick the kids up from school and who's going to balance the checkbook and who is going to take the trash to the curb because she, do, she don't have to listen to her talk. She's there for you whenever you want and you can close the lid when you're done with her. And she doesn't mind. She'll be waiting for you when you get back. That's unfaithfulness to your spouse. Oh, you may not have kicked him out. They may not, there may not be some sort of piece of paper that indicates the dissolution of the marriage, but it's unfaithfulness to our spouses. And that's what Jesus is after. That's what the Bible is after. And we wonder why we have this sense of spiritual dryness. Why does it seem that my prayers don't make it past the ceiling? Why does it seem that there's a coldness in my heart? Why can't I feel? Why, when I'm with the people of God, do I not seem to have the same sense of feeling and emotion and love for the Lord that they have? Could it be that the Lord is being faithful and acting as a witness to your covenant? He loves you too much. He loves marriage, his institution, too much to let you consider, to let you walk down that path and carry on business as usual. This applies much more broadly than just to marriage. For Samuel 15, 
22 says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. God does not accept outward acts of religious practice or devotion that are not accompanied, accompanied by heartfelt obedience. Thirdly and lastly, God is your owner and you must fulfill his mission. God is your owner and you must fulfill his mission. Look at verses 15 and 16. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in spirit and do not break faith. Look at what Malachi tells the people. If it is ultimately God who joins a couple together in marital unity, if God is the architect of the institution of marriage, that means God owns the patent rights to it. That means that you cannot use marriage for your purposes. God tells you, because I own it, you have a responsibility to do with your marriage that which I designed it for. One of the purposes, and this is not the only purpose, but the purpose that's listed in our text is godly offspring. God intends for unified marriages to produce children who grow up to love and serve God. And he tells his people that all throughout their history. This was something that they would repeat over and over again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. God understood that for the perpetuation, that the perpetuation of his people who would love and serve him would take place in families that were committed to raising their children in the training and instruction of the Lord. Something that we too are to do today. God was stating to these people in Malachi, in no uncertain terms, that marriage was something that he created and thus he owned. It was to, to fulfill his purposes, his objective, his mission, as I state in your outline. And so I say to us today that marriage is no less God's institution for us today than it was for them. Marriage is for mission. Marriage is for mission. Marriage is not an accessory that you simply add to your life along with a bunch of other things that you might like to have, like season tickets to the Tigers and a job. All of those things are to one degree or another optional, but marriage is not an accessory as our, college some, as our, as our uh, culture sometimes views it. It is not, believe it or not, primarily about fulfilling you and making you happy. Your marriage isn't about you. My marriage isn't about me. 
And the sooner I understand that, the sooner I recognize that God is the one who created it, God is the one who owned it, and marriage is for mission, the sooner I understand that, the sooner my marriage and your marriage, they're going to be heading in the right direction because we will be using our marriages for the purpose for which they were originally created. We cannot take this good gift from a good giver and use it for for services other than what he intends. So if the marriage is no longer fulfilling, if the marriage is holding you back, whether, per, whether perceived or in actuality from, the, from what you want, then it stands to reason that you should call it a day and move on. But what if your marriage is about more, much more, than your own personal fulfillment and happiness? The Bible elevates the institution of marriage. And tells us that it's something about, some, about something that's much, much bigger than us. Marriage is for mission. One of those mission fields, as our text says, is in our homes. Couples united, sacrificially loving each other, training their kids in the instruction of the Lord. But not all people can have children. And I don't pretend to be able to understand the pain of wanting and not being able to have. But please do not take away from this that your marriage is not about mission if that part is, if that is not a component that God has blessed you with in your marriage. Because Ephesians chapter 5 <clears throat> verses 25 to 32 gives us an even bigger component. And I'm going to turn there and just read it for you. You can turn there if you want, but Ephesians 5... 25 to 32 says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And here it is. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. See, the grand mission of all sorts of imperfect marriages. And not a single person in here has a perfect marriage. But the grand ambition of God is to picture something much bigger than marriage itself. The grand ambition of God is to picture the love that Jesus has for the church, that Jesus has for his people. And so your marriage can be a picture of the gospel. That is the mission of marriage. And so many petty things get pushed to the side when we realize that it's about that. So as we wrap this up, I stated in the beginning of the message that life in a fallen world is messy. And whether it's marital relationships or all other kinds or other kinds of relationships, that's what we have broken relationships in our lives. Our church family, the family that God has put together here, all of us are family. 
And there are members of our family, whether you have done the sinning or whether you've been 50-50 in the sinning or whether you've been sinned against, there are all kinds of situations like that. And when it comes to broken marital commitments, there are some things that can't be undone, right? There are some things that you can't fix. There are some things for which you cannot make restitution. And this is why the gospel is such good news for you. This is why you can walk away from a message like this not, not being discouraged because, because you have mistakes and sin in your past, but being encouraged because no one has a perfect marriage. Our hope isn't in having a perfect marriage. Your hope and my hope isn't in having a perfect marriage. Our hope is in the perfect thing that imperfect marriages point to. Our hope is in Jesus. Marital sins or sins of any other kind, you can't make them up. You can't fix it. You've done too much. I've done too much. You can't fix it. But there is somebody who can. And the way forward for you is not trying to fix everything, fix something that you cannot fix. The way forward is repentance, believing in this profound mystery of Christ and the church because if I call your attention to what I had read, the Bible says that that Jesus gave himself for the church. Why did Jesus have to give himself for the church? Did Jesus give himself to the church because it was perfect? Jesus gave himself to the church precisely because it wasn't perfect. He had to die on the cross and take care of all of our sins, past, present, and future, no matter how they are, severe they are, and no, ma- no matter what kind of collateral damage that they have caused, we can bring all of those things to Jesus, bring them to the foot of the cross, repent of them, and receive a full pardon. And it doesn't matter what you've done to this point. What matters is what you do now. Will you wallow in what you have done? Or will you go to Jesus and give it to him? When you do that, and when I do that, we can move forward. We can be faithful as God has directed us now. Some of you do not have that relationship with Jesus. You have messed up big time. And you cannot atone for your sin. And that is why the gospel that I've just preached to our church family, many of whom are Christians, is for you. The gospel is for you because the gospel is the good news that that Christ has paid the penalty for your sin, your failures. And if you will only come to him in repentance and faith, he will wipe the slate clean. That's hard to believe. It doesn't mean that there aren't effects. But between you and God, you're good. Because he will separate your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. Or, as one of my kids put it, he will throw them in the ocean far, far away from you. If you will only believe the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, we recognize... And I recognize that we have sinned and I have sinned.
not just in our marriages, but in all sorts of relationships. And we recognize that we are not our own, that we've been bought with a price and that we're to glorify God with our bodies and that, Lord, we want to do that. And so if there are folks here who are struggling to move forward because of their past, I pray that you would help them bring that past to Jesus and leave it with him. For those of us who are struggling with faithfulness to our spouses, Lord, impress upon our hearts. Convict us. Do not let us go forward. Be a faithful witness to us. Do not let us go forward with business as usual. Help us to repent. Give us hearts that want to repent. Let us see that grace. And let us move forward in all of our relationships, but particularly in our marriages, with the mission and purpose that you designed them for. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.